Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids, a podcast that steps into alternative education, parenting, and living a funner, fuller family life. I'm Robin, home educator, unschooling mom to two funny, eclectic kids, and we're here to create a space for families to listen, connect, learn from others, and be inspired. Join us every two weeks to hear interviews and tips from experts in learning, education, and parenting, and stories from families that are playing full out in the arena of life and education. World schooling, unschooling, alternative schooling, homeschooling, or just creating a whole new style of learning. Are you looking for a unique learning system that is designed to recover learning loss, demystify learning, and make learning fun and easy? Then take a look at what Fearless Learners has to offer. Fearless Learners by Success Codes, where all children can learn and grow fearless with a learning success coach by their side. Their certified learning success coaches make learning easy with their proven holistic coaching methodology, which is a unique and superior alternative to tutoring and teaching in all subjects. All of their coaches are certified teachers as well as certified learning success coaches who've left the school system to create the right environment to provide customized and personalized learning experiences. You can find them at learningsuccessacademy.com. Welcome to Honey, I'm Homeschooling the Kids. I'm Robin Robertson. I am the creator and host of this podcast, and I'm happy that you're here. Whether this is your first episode or whether this is your 155th episode, I'm always grateful to have you here listening and and supporting the show. So if you're a new homeschooler, or even if you've been homeschooling for a while, but you're looking for a little bit of inspiration or encouragement, I have something for you. If you've listened to the last couple episodes, you may know or follow me on social media that we are getting ready for our How to Be an Awesome Homeschooler Summit, which happens in the spring. The spring, it's March 24th. The theme this year is Purpose, Persist, Play. So this summit, Kelly Edwards and I co-founded the summit, Kelly Edwards of the 90-Minute School Day, because we wanted to offer an additional source of inspiration, encouragement, knowledge, and learning that was accessible and easy to hear. This summit is free to attend live, so that's March 24th, and we have some amazing keynotes and workshops. We have Leah Bowden of Modern Miss Mason talking about purpose. We have Julie Bogart, a brave writer, you know, the fantastic Julie Bogart talking about persist, and the wonderful Mr. Chaz, playful Mr. Chaz. You might know him from his TikTok and Instagram sensation. He is speaking to play, and Whether you homeschool Charlotte Mason, classical, or your kids go to school, this summit is for you because we talk about purpose with our home learning, but with our family in general. We talk about play and parenting. You know, Mr. Chaz is actually a parent educator. Uh, He's an early childhood educator himself as well. And every part of the keynote supplies, I really think if you're a parent to every section of our lives, especially to our home learning lives as well. And our workshops. Kelly Edwards is offering a workshop on supporting neurodiversity, and I'll be offering a workshop on supporting self-directed teens. So go to howtobeanawesomehomeschooler.com. It's free to attend live. I recommend that you register even for your free ticket because then you receive the digital swag bag. Everyone that registers gets the swag bag, which is filled with a ton of goodies and resources. Discounts on books from some of my favorite publishers like Inhabit Media, Red Barn Books, which are a shout out Canadian publishers. One is from Nunavut, Inhabit Media is from Nunavut, and Red Barn Books is from Alberta. There are free classes offered, free coaching sessions. Erica Kesselman, who's our gold sponsor, is offering a conscious parenting session, coaching session as well. Um, there is there's a ton. There is so much offered in there that I recommend. There's downloads and PDFs. I'm going to be offering my son's 
scientific animal journal that he and I created together, um, how he kept track and of the animals that he was interested in and the information on them. Um, Kelly Edwards is offering a video training on supporting quiet time and how, if you know and follow her, she does quiet time every day with her kids, how that's fun and easy and it's a great part of the day for them as well. There's just so many resources offered. I recommend that you register at howtobeanawesomehomeschooler.com. The summit is audio only, just to let you know. So you can do whatever you're doing, go for a walk, go to the playground, sew, do dishes, draw, I, I you know, listen in the car. So it is easy to do that. If you can't make it live, we are offering the sessions recorded. There's a special package that you get the recordings of the keynotes and workshops, the PDFs of all of the keynotes and workshops, plus we are offering our movie watch party with that special package. Every year we choose an inspiring documentary or film that um, offers a unique learning journey, like I share in the podcast. And this year it's Maiden Trip. Last year it was class dismissed. This year it's Maiden Trip, the story about Laura Decker, the 14-year-old who sailed around the world by herself at 14. An amazing film. My kids and I love it. And that's the film we're showing for our movie watch party after the summit. And we are also offering a special live Q&A group coaching session with Kelly Edwards and I, and that's post-summit as well. And so you can purchase that package. It's only $37, which is, I mean, it's unbelievable for everything that's in there. At, you can find that at howtobeanawesomehomeschooler.com. All right. So I hope to see you at the summit March 24th. If you have questions, just message or DM me. Now for this episode, this is actually a re-release Dr. Peter Gray was an early interview, and now that some of my episodes are getting archived on podcast players because we have so many, I thought this is a good time to re-release that amazing interview with Dr. Peter Gray, especially because this week, March 12th, we're heading into our focus on play uh, before the summit launches. So enjoy this episode. I love this interview. Uh, Hopefully, we can have him back on the show again in the future. And let me know what you think and your feedback and how you incorporate play and what play means to you as well in life and learning. Today on the show, I have Dr. Peter Gray. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. So Dr. Peter Gray, if for those of you who have not heard of him yet, although I'm sure most have, is a research professor of psychology at Boston College who's conducted and published research in neuroendocrinology, developmental psychology, anthropology, and education. He is author of an internationally acclaimed introductory psychology textbook, Psychology, which is now in in its eighth edition, which views all of psychology from an evolutionary perspective. His recent research focuses on the role of play in human evolution and how children educate themselves through play and exploration when they are free to do so. He's expanded on these ideas in his book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. He also authors a regular blog called Freedom to Learn from Psychology Today magazine. He is a founding member and president of the nonprofit Alliance for Self-Directed Education, which is aimed at creating a world in which children's natural ways of learning are facilitated rather than suppressed. He's also a founding board director of the nonprofit Let Grow, the mission of which is to renew children's freedom to play and explore outdoors independently of adults. He earned his undergraduate degree at Columbia College and PhD in biological sciences at the Rockefeller University many years ago. His own current play includes kayaking, long-distance bicycling, backwood skiing, and vegetable gardening. Thank you very much. I I see we have some shared interests, backwood (laughs) skiing, vegetable gardening. I first would like to say your book, Free to Learn, is one of my favorites. It's one of the ones I keep on my bedside table. And I think your reading uh, that, along with John Holt, were some of my favorite early readings when I started the the uh, process and of self-directed learning and home education with my family. And it's been a great guide in my learning, especially opening the door on play, essentially, and the importance of play. So th- thank you very much for that for that book. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. 
And I know that you are an advocate for self-directed learning. And from that book and free to learn, you actually talk about in the very beginning what the tipping point was for you, the personal experience you had with your son and the struggles he was facing in traditional schooling. Would you share a little bit of this story with the listeners? Yeah, just a little bit. I'll uh, leave the full story to um, <laughs> for people who uh, pick up my book. I, I really start off the introduction by describing this story. But this was many, many years ago, way back in the late 1970s. My son had been um, a student at the local public school, considered to be a very good suburban school, He had been there from kindergarten through fourth grade into fifth grade, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, and fighting the system the entire way through, (laughs) really and truly fighting the system. He, uh, He hated school. He felt that it was prison. He was very articulate about that. We fought with him. We kept thinking, oh, you know, he's got to adjust to this. He's got to adapt to this. Uh, And we kept thinking, well, you know, Next year, he's going to have a different teacher, and things will work out, and they never did work out. And finally, it came to a head. Um, I sorry, in, in, in retrospect, I am so sorry that we, we uh, his mother and I, took so long to come around to supporting him. But it wasn't until fifth grade that he really won the battle. He really made it very, very clear to the people in the school, to us, that he was simply not going to surrender (laughs) to the school authority. He was not going to follow rules that he thought didn't make any sense, that he had no role in, in making, that he was not going to do assignments that seemed stupid to him. Um, He was not going to do any of that. He just wasn't. I don't know where he got that from, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I was not that way as a student. So we had to find something else for him. It became very clear. And what we found was the Sudbury Valley School. And I I have to say I had heard of it before. Uh, It wasn't a a brand new discovery. But we hadn't seriously considered it until we realized that um, Scott, uh, my son, was not going to do anything that involved uh, coercion in his learning. He needed to be in charge of his own education. And Sudbury Valley was a place where that could happen. I was happy when I saw that he was happy there. But, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm uh, by nature skeptical about things. I want evidence. I don't make gut decisions, you know, as some people are very good supposedly at gut decisions. I'm not. I don't, or I don't trust gut decisions. I wanted evidence that, well, does, you know, so he's happy, but is he you know, is he going to be able to get a job you know, at some point? Is he going to be able to go to higher education if he wants, go to college? Not that I would push him towards that. I'm not that kind of a parent. But uh, I would want that to be an option for him. And so what if he went through this school where there's no curriculum, there's no learning requirements, there's no testing, you're just free to play and explore, pursue your own interests in this very beautiful setting for doing so? Is he going to become educated in the sense of is he going to learn what he needs to know to um, live an independent adult life? Uh, I didn't want him, even then, I did, <laughs> thinking ahead, I didn't want him living in my basement all his life, right? So, <laughs> or all my life. So I uh, got interested in, um, in, well, what's the history of this school? Already at that time, this was, as I said, way back in the Well, by the time that I was beginning to think about doing research, it was already uh, early uh, 1920s, (laughs) well, wait a minute, 1980s, and and, uh, the school had already been in existence by that time for something like 13 years and already had quite a number of graduates. So I decided to do a study of the graduates. This was a completely different field from the research I had previously been doing. I'd been doing neuroscience research, looking at the binding of certain hormones on the in the brains of laboratory rodents and how it affected the 
activity in uh, certain neural areas and how that in turn affected certain kinds of motivated behavior in the animals. So I was doing an entirely different kind of research. And at first I wanted to find somebody else, somebody whose specialty was educational research or child development to do a study of the graduates of this school, but I couldn't find anybody interested in doing it. So I decided if a study is going to be done, I'm going to have to do it myself. So I ended up doing this study of the graduates of the school at that time with the help of uh, David Chenoff, who at that time was a part-time staff member at Sudbury Valley. And he helped uh, me locate the graduates and um, helped with with doing uh, various aspects of the study. We ended up uh, publishing this study in the American Journal of Education. And that study really convinced me that, lo and behold, here we've got a school where children are not doing what looks like school. It looks like they're at recess all the time, (laughs) you know. (laughs) By any reasonable criterion, they're becoming educated. They're going on as adults to good lives. They're getting jobs that they enjoy and that they make a living at. Those who want to go on to college don't seem to have any difficulty getting in or uh, doing well once there. Wow, you know, this is <laughs> this turns our views of education upside down. I mean, you know, the general population is kind of led to believe by the school authorities that if you miss a few days of school, you're going to fall behind, right? You know, you're going to, how you're never going to catch up. Uh, certainly if you missed a year and, uh, you know, we enforce the truancy laws, we prevent parents, we prevent families from going on vacations because they're going to, kids are, God forbid, are going to miss a little bit of school. Well, here's kids who are missing the whole damn thing, right? (laughs) They weren't doing any of it. (laughs) And yet they're okay. Yet they're okay. You know, what a discovery is that? I It seemed earth-shaking to me. It so far hasn't shaken the earth for most people, but (laughs) it was, uh, it was, that was a turning point for me. Uh, This was too interesting to ignore. And so it, it satisfied my need as a parent to, to feel comfortable about my son um, choosing this path of education, but it really stimulated a lot of questions, stimulated my curiosity to want to know, well, how are they becoming educated? What's going on here? How are they, how are they learning? How are they acquiring the skills that they need to go on to a satisfying life? It's a great study, and I definitely recommend you can still, I've read it, you can go, I think it's on uh, Psychology Today, isn't it, so that we can find it? You can, online, you have it published as well. Yes, actually, you can, you know, I, you can find a, um, a PDF of the study on the author page for my Psychology Today blog. I do a blog, regular blog for Psychology Today, and if you go to the author page by clicking on my photo on any blog post. Um, I have there a number of PDFs of research studies and, and articles and chapters that I've written. And um, one of them is uh, that study that was published quite many years ago. Okay, perfect. I will re- reference that on in the show notes as well. So anyone can click on there and go right to it too. So I'm wondering, because here we have, like you said, the discovery of this different type of learning, Sudbury School, Sudbury Valley, which is very different from what we all really know and traditionally know and believe to be true when it comes to learning and education. How are, you said, you, you know, one of the questions was, how are they be, becoming educated? So how, how do you see them becoming educated, the graduates and the kids that were attending the school? Yes, after doing that study and sort of my winding down over a few years, some of my neuroscience research, I began to do a, a number of other studies aimed at getting help. Uh, one of them, uh, which was actually primarily done by one of my graduate students, uh, was um, an observational study conducted at the school. Uh, Jay Feldman is the name of the graduate student, graduate student at that time. And he spent many, many days uh, at the school making observations of what's going on. He became kind of a fly on the wall. I mean, everybody knew he was there. Everybody knew why he was there, but they quickly forgot about that and 
people were behaving as far as we could tell and as far as the staff and others at the school could tell in a perfectly normal way. So he was watching what was happening and he was paying particular attention to age-mixed interactions among the children at the school and ended up doing his dissertation on that. And he and I ended up uh, writing some articles about age-mixing and the role of that in the school. Uh, So this is a school where there are children from age four on through what elsewhere would be called high school age. And they're not segregated by age. They're free to interact across age. There are now about 150 students or so at the school. At that time, there were something like 70 or 80 students at the school. And we were interested in the role of age mixing uh, in the education. And part of the reason for that was uh, one of the primary founders of the school and the principal philosopher of the school, Daniel Greenberg, had always argued that age mixing is the key to education there. So we took that as a clue and looked at age mixed interactions. The first thing we found was the children who are free to interact with anyone they please do not self-segregate by age. There's a lot of play and other kinds of interactions across wide ranges in age. And what um, Jay observed, and we did this in a very systematic way where he sort of uh, made, um, wrote down sort of vignettes of observations of of age-mixed interactions that occurred, and then we did a qualitative analysis of them. Basically, what we found in this study is that whenever children who differ significantly in age. For the purpose of that specific study, we said they had to be at least four years different in age. Whenever that occurs, it's a learning experience. It's not explicitly one. It's not like the older child is deliberately teaching the younger child, but simply in the course of interaction, in the course of their play, in the course of their conversation, in the course of whatever they're doing, the older child is boosting the younger one up to a higher level of activity than that child would be able to do alone or with somebody the same age. And at the same time, the older child is sort of acquiring a sense of maturity, a sense of caring, a sense of, I can help somebody else. The older child is learning by teaching in the sense of just explaining things to the younger child how to do whatever it is that they're trying to do together. So that played a huge role, obviously. We also saw that children in play engage in all the kinds of activities that one would think would be important to our culture. They get not necessarily at any particular age, but they begin to get interested in reading. You can't help if you're in a literate environment to get interested in reading. And they play at games that involve reading. They see other kids reading. They learn how to read quite naturally. They play games that involve numbers. They're doing things in the, you know, if for example, if they're interested in cooking, they're cutting recipes in half or multiplying recipes by three. You know, they're getting a sense of <laughs> what it means to divide and multiply. They're playing games that involve adding and subtracting and calculating averages. They're just picking up math. They're picking up reading just in the course of their natural lives. You can't help, you, you almost can't avoid these things uh, if you're in a literate and numerate world and, and an environment where people are doing a lot of interesting things. The other thing that we observed is that different children got interested, passionately interested in different things. Not everybody did this way. A lot of some people get interested in a lot of different things and they become sort of generalists. But there are other children who you could say they become specialists. They become just fascinated by something. And uh, one of the things that our study of the graduates showed is because we asked them um, what they did, what they played at when they were students at the school, and we also then asked them what their career was, what they were doing. And one of the most interesting findings is that many of the graduates of the school were in careers that were direct extensions of the passionate interests that they developed in play as children at the school. And I might say that much more recently, along with a colleague, Gina Riley, I've conducted some somewhat similar follow-up study of grown unschoolers. So these are homeschoolers who 
are in charge of their own education or not being forced to learn some curriculum, but rather are free to follow their own interests in a homeschooling context. And we did a study of grown unschoolers and found the same thing, that um, many of them were in careers that were direct extensions of interests that they developed in children. So to the question of how they become educated, they learn the things that we kind of all have to know in order to navigate the world that we're in because they are navigating. They're growing up navigating that the world that they're in. And so they pick it up through life. They pick it up quite naturally. And they also learn something, some special interest. They acquire special interests that give them ideas about what they ultimately want to do as a career. And then if it involves going on to college, they figure out what they need to do to get into college in order to pursue that career. If it doesn't require going on to college, they may figure out in some other way how they go on into the career that they are interested in. I've heard you call uh, free play self-motivated practice of life skills before. I think that's an interesting, interesting definition. I like it. But, you know, why when the word play, you think you always think play and childhood. It's, you know, play equals childhood in so many ways. But yet adults seem to be scared of the word or scared of letting their kids play or play freely. Why do you think that is? I think that is a recent thing. So um, when I was a kid, parents were not afraid of letting their kids play freely. Certainly most parents weren't. In fact, they wanted us to. They wanted us out of the house. (laughs) Come back when it's dark. From the age of four or five, they wanted you out of the house. And school was not the big deal it was today. And parents weren't as involved in school as they are today. Uh, At least the schools I went to, the elementary schools I went to, this was way back in the 1950s. There was no homework. You know, so kids played. Kids played most of the time. Uh, Play being broadly defined, uh, in some ways, uh, my technical definition of play, I I would say it's a smaller portion of time that they played. But they were free to play. They were out there free to play. Much more time than they were ever in school. (laughs) And that's actually, believe it or not, except for times of uh, slavery, child slavery, times of... uh, intense child labor. We went through a terrible period of history during the industrialization period where many children were essentially slaves in, in sweatshops and so on. But if you discount those times, throughout history, most children spend most of their time playing with other children away from adults. And I am convinced that this is natural to children. Children are born to play. They are born to learn through play. And by play, I mean activity that's freely chosen by the children themselves or with other children, where they're learning to compromise and make choices among themselves, largely away from adults. So they're learning how to make decisions. They're learning how to negotiate with other kids. They're learning how to deal with minor bullying, they're learning how to solve problems, they're learning they can fall down and pick themselves up, they're learning how to be independent in this play. We are today not allowing children this. They are in school much more than before, and when they're not in school, they're often doing homework, and when they're not doing homework, we often put them into other kinds of adult-directed activities Uh, we are not letting kids just go out and play, or even those parents who do let their kids do that, the kids are not finding anybody else to play with. And of course, it's no fun being outdoors all by yourself for most kids, uh, most of the time. Kids are not necessarily naturally attracted to the great outdoors, they are attracted to other kids. And so if there's nobody else out there to play with, They'll get back on their iPhones um, because at least that way they can find their friends. Um, uh, right. They can interact and, and interact with other their, people. Yeah. So we have created a world where um, this is really, in some sense, a new experiment. And I would say the experiment has failed. A world in which, for the first time in the history of, hum- of humanity, Children are growing up more or less constantly guarded and watched by adults and not allowed to play freely where they're not being judged and evaluated and controlled and 
monitored and, and um, directed by adults. And I think we're beginning to see the consequences, we actually are seeing the consequences of that, uh, which, I, which I can talk about separately. So what, what has caused this? Why are we afraid of play? And I think it's not so much being afraid of play, but what it is is we have, number one, an obsession with schooling, an absolute obsession with schooling as a culture. We've gone berserk <laughs> about this. And the belief that, that children have to spend so much time at school that these test scores that are so important – and the truth of the matter is that the, with this mode of schooling, children learn for the test and then they forget it anyway. I mean, it's just we're wasting huge amounts of children's time and we're putting them under tremendous amount of stress. But we have been brainwashed as a society to believe that getting these high test scores, getting into honors classes, doing all the right things, getting into the right extracurricular activities, that this is all terribly important so that you can get into the right college, <laughs> you know, so that otherwise you're going to be homeless. That's kind of a slight exaggeration, but that's the way many, many parents have been led to believe. So children then are under tremendous pressure coming from teachers, from parents, from society in general, from themselves, from their peers to get high grades in school. And that creates a lot of anxiety on everybody's part. So that's part of it. And then this, and then this kind of this, what I sometimes refer to as this schoolish mentality about child development that sort of children learn and develop best when they are guided and directed by adults. This has sort of spread out of the schooling context. So certainly middle-class parents believe that their children are going to learn more and develop better if they're in some kind of an adult-directed sport or other kind of activity than if they're just out playing on their own. So that's part of it. And then the other thing that adds on to all of this is that we have been convinced that it's dangerous out there for children to be out there without being guarded by some adult. So even teenagers today are, you know, many parents believe it's not safe even for their teenager to be out there unless there's some adult watching them. I mean, it used to be when I was five, I could go anywhere in town without any adult. I could go, and if I was with my six-year-old friend, I could even go out of town on our bicycles, as I describe in my book. Nowadays, you have 12, 13, 14-year-olds who aren't allowed to do that. So we, we have developed this incredible fear. We, we, you know, we used to call it stranger danger, that somehow our Somehow, if we let our children out, they're going to be snatched away by a stranger on the street. We've been led to believe that this is a common crime, and it's not a common crime. It's a very, very rare crime. It's always been rare, and it's even more rare today than it ever was in the past. Children who are snatched away are not snatched away by strangers on the street. They're snatched away more, more often by relatives by people you know very well. Children who are sexually molested are far more molested by, to, to be molested by a priest or a teacher or a uncle or, you know, than by, um, than by some stranger on the street. And when children are playing together, when there's a bunch of children, it's almost non-existent that this has happened. Nobody's going to do this in front of witnesses. So the, um, so we've developed an irrational fear of letting our children go out to play. And then, of course, if there are not other children out there, it does become somewhat more dangerous. So it becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we don't let children out there, so there's nobody else to play with, and if you're a child out there all by yourself, you probably are in a little bit of more danger than you would be if there were other children out there playing with you. So these are all things that have happened. One could go on forever about this, about the mm -hmm. social changes in our society that have led to these changes and then that play a role in them. Uh, but essentially, it is the fears that we have of the dangers out there and this greatly increased weight of schooling and this schooling mentality that we have about child development. Right, right. I, I know... Um 
a little while ago, I had Lenore Skenazy on the show, and I know you know she, she you work with her on the Let Grow Foundation. But I mean, the very first time I ever heard of her was her tag that she received from media as the world's worst mom. Yes, because <laughs> she had let her son take the subway right home, and even though she said they had talked about it, they had practiced it, but it was really driven by something he wanted to do. It wasn't her saying, "Well, you need to do." You know, it was something he wanted to do, and and he did it successfully, and yet she was extremely targeted but you know that's that's also something that she talked about how now because of our irrational fear yet the neighborhoods are quiet there's no kids on the playground there's you know so you want to go outside or let your kids go outside you're almost looked at funny as kind of being irresponsible as a parent and so the yeah, the fear grows i i definitely understand how the cycle it, it's a continuous circle in that way just as an example of that there was a study this was actually done in um the uk um but w- which is very similar to the united states in all of these things that i'm talking about where they looked at three generations of the same families uh, and these were families in that had children ranging from six to ten years old and they ask the grandparents, when you were six to ten years old, what range were you allowed to explore on your own? What was the, how far away were you allowed to go away from home? And then they ask the parents that, and then they ask the parents so how about their children? How far are they allowed to? So the grandparents, their average range was several kilometers. Right? They were allowed to go several kilometers away from home. They regularly did. They. You know, the, the parents were allowed, on average, to go half a kilometer away from home. The children, and these are six to ten-year-old children, were allowed to go nowhere away from home. They could not leave wow. their own yard. So in three generations, this is the change that has occurred. And I think that's illustrative. I, that fits with my own experience. I, I'm old enough to have seen all those three generations. This is what's happened. This is what we, we you know, think about it. We have essentially imprisoned our children. When they're home, they're kind of like under house arrest. (laughs) They're not allowed to leave the house unless there's some guard with them. And when they're in school, they are, in my son's words, in prison. They They are guarded. They are, they're in some sense, they have less freedom than a typical prison prisoner in a real prison. They are not allowed to go to the bathroom without asking permission and so on and so forth. They're being told exactly what they have to read, what they have to think about, and and all of that. And then we wonder why there's such high rates of uh, anxiety and depression and even growing rates of suicide among uh, school-aged children, especially teenagers. Yeah, mental health is probably, I think, one of the biggest uh, issues that education is facing today for their children. I, you know, I get a chance to work with public schools in the area, and that is definitely the biggest, the biggest issue that they're dealing with is mental health of not only the, I mean, the parents, but especially the kids and how best to support or help and deal with that. Right, and those and, are the consequences. And, and the problem those- is, we we. We think we want to think in terms of therapy. We keep thinking, well, and therapy is yeah, important right. for people who are suffering, but we're not thinking about prevention. We're not thinking about what is really causing these problems, right. and how and how can we um, get rid of the, what's causing the problem? We need to, you know, if you take away play from children, that's going to cause depression. There's actually a, there's a one of the play recently died a very famous play researcher, Brian Sutton Smith, used to say. The opposite of play is not work, it's depression. And um, I, I don't say that because the grammar doesn't quite fit, but I think the absence of play is clearly depression. <laughs> you know, that's, right. that's the absence of a playful spirit. The absence of play is depression. And so if we take away play and we put children ever more in these competitive situations where they're constantly being measured and evaluated and compared with their peers, and even out of school, instead of just going out and playing, they're put on competitive teams where people seem to care whether they're winning or losing or whether they make the first team or the second team and so on. Um, of course, they're going to be anxious. That's the; those are the conditions that create anxiety. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, and I know with those competitive teams as well, or those other activities, the further ahead that you get in them, the more that's needed, that more that's required, the, an extra day of practice, an extra day of competition, a couple more hours, you know, so it gets to be, you're right, you're going to school full time, and then you're doing your competitive activity full time as well, five hours, four hours, Maybe you might have a few few hours off on Sunday, but every other day of the week, you're busy, engaged in that. So yeah, it's it's a big change. I know from when I was a kid, there I see a huge change. I'm I'm 42, so or turning 42. So yeah, there's a big. I remember you know everyone in the neighborhood would ride their bikes around until it got dark, and your parents called you inside or. You played in the dirt and the dirt hills and you, you know, jumped your bike and crashed and rolled and cried and got back up again. And, you know, there was, yeah, you had a lot, a lot of freedom and it was play. You came home and you played, you played and you played and you played till you had to go to bed essentially. And that's what, what it was about. So I know, um, you know, I said that we, I get many questions as well from listeners and from that reach out that have, you know, fears or questions about when it comes to self-directed learning or unschooling. And you've answered quite a bit already in what you've been explaining. You know, one of them I, I get is, but don't you think kids need some structure or consequences? I certainly do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and kids, there's no such thing as uh, kids not having structure. You know, uh, play itself is structured. It's all, you know, sometimes people talk about unstructured play. I never use the term unstructured play. It's always structured. Think about it. All play is structured. When children play, they are creating a structure. Uh, all play has sort of rules, you know, kind of the rules might be implicit, or, uh, but they become explicit if somebody violates them. So, yeah. you know, even imagine just a play fight, a couple of boys chasing one another around and wrestling and tossing one another down a hill and so on. The difference between that play fight and a real fight is the play fight has rules. It has structure. The no hitting, no kicking, no biting, no really hurting the other person. If you're the bigger and stronger of the two, you've got a self-handicap, and so on and so forth. Children impose rules upon themselves when they play. They impose structure. No matter what you're playing, you are that activity is structured. It's never random. So kids, oftentimes people say kids crave structure. Yes, they do. <laughs> and that's why they create structure. They don't need somebody else to impose structure upon them. They don't need that because they are looking, they, they need to create their own structure. And that's what free play is all about. The other thing I would say to that is, um, and, and not all unschooling parents would agree with me on this, but I think it's completely appropriate uh, in a household to expect uh, that children would contribute to the to the chores of the house, <laughs> contribute mm-hmm. to the to you know to the house, and I think that it's interesting. There's actually research on this. If children are allowed, <laughs> and I'd say allowed, not even just forced to, because most children, when they're little kids, kind of really want to help out. It's it's there's That's actually true. research showing they want to help out. If they are allowed to help out when they're little, even though they're actually not providing all that much help because they're not that competent at it yet, they kind of grow up with the attitude, yeah, it's kind of my job. It's my expectation. It's sort of fun to help out. I am, I, I want, I'm part of this family and I want to help. So I think that the idea of children helping out in the house, doing some, doing some of the housework, taking some responsibility, that that's quite acceptable. And I think it's quite acceptable to have family rules about that. The other thing we know, I talked about Sudbury Valley School at the beginning. And of course, there are now many, many schools modeled after Sudbury Valley. And there are other schools, agile learning centers and so on, that are similar in many ways. And these schools are not without rules. There are rules in these schools, but they're democratically made rules. So, there, in fact, Sudbury Valley has a whole law book <laughs> that's been developed over the years. You're not just free to do anything. You can't do, you can't litter. You can't, if you take out toys, you have to put them away. If you, uh, if you're, there's no bullying, there's no, there's rules about about interfering with other people's rights. Uh, there's lots and lots of rules and you have to follow rules. So, 
it's not the case that children are in either in unschooling or in a Sudbury school are living without uh, rules. It's very important to learn to follow rules uh, as you're growing up. And actually, I also want to point out for anybody listening that's unfamiliar with Sudbury School, the democratic schools, the students, the kids, everyone that's part of the school is an active part in the democratic process of how the school functions and runs, uh, including the staff as well, right? That's correct. So this, all the decisions of the school are made at a school meeting that meets once a week, and um, all the students and staff have one vote on it. So whether you're a four-year-old student or a 70-year-old staff member, you have one vote at the school meeting. And the, the meeting makes all the rules of the behave, of behavior. It decides uh, all the important issues. And at most Sudbury schools, um, certainly at Sudbury Valley, uh, even the election, even staff members um, are ultimately elected by the school meeting. Um, so there's, it's a little bit more complicated than just a straightforward vote because there has to be also some discussion of what skills we need for staff members and so on and so forth. But at uh, most Sudbury schools, there's no such thing as, in fact, at all Sudbury schools, there's no such thing as tenure. You only have a one-year contract. And the decision as to whether you stay on the staff or not includes a vote of the, uh, of all the students and staff at the school. So, so this, so the hierarchy of, uh, Sudbury School is the opposite of, um, of the typical, um, of the typical public or private school. Children are in charge <laughs> and the staff are hired to serve the children. And when you're, when you're given that autonomy and knowing that you have a voice in your learning and education completely flips things. You know, it, it, the motivation, the want, the desires, all of that. You know, I, I, I remember, I think you talk about some of the seven sins of schooling. And, you know, one of that was, um, you know, how, how it so, becomes so top-down, so authoritarian, and children have no voice. Students in school have no voice. They, you know, are directed and just told what to do, and they have to follow no choice either. So it really uh, taps your desire and your expression and your ability to pursue those things that you love and you want to learn more of. Exactly. There's a huge difference between a rule that's forced upon you as it is in school, in typical schools, where you had no, you had no voice in creating that rule. And the rule comes across as arbitrary. I mean, I keep hearing of schools, for example, that have rules that, um, no tag at recess is becoming more and more of a common rule. How atrocious that is. And the kids have no vote on that. It's just forced upon them. Any rule at Sudbury Valley is uh, debated. You have a vote on it. Wait, even if you disagree with it in the end, you know that you had a voice on it. And you could, if you convince enough people, you could overturn that rule. There's a huge difference between those rules that you had a voice in and rules that are just imposed upon you and how you think about those rules and how whether or not you respect those rules. You know, the other thing to point out, you know, we pride ourselves in the United States in being a democratic society. We believe we're, we, we believe in democracy. We, and yet we are raising our children by sending them to schools, which are, as Daniel Greenberg, the founder of Sudbury Valley pointed out long ago, the least democratic institutions that we have in our nation, <laughs> the most authoritarian, the most uh, autocratic. We have, uh, and, and where children are at the very bottom of the hierarchy, where they have no power whatsoever. So we preach democracy to them in schools, but we completely deprive them of the, of the normal democratic rights. And so it's no wonder, given that, that many young people grow up feeling kind of cynical about the whole idea of democracy. Mm -hmm. It's something that mm -hmm. they've been taught in lectures and read about, but that they have not actually experienced growing up. So the people who founded Sudbury Valley School, their first belief was, look, if we want to prepare people to be democratic citizens, we need to raise them in a setting where they are actually, in a firsthand manner, experiencing democracy. They're experiencing all the rights and privileges of growing up in a democratic society. So what a Sudbury School is, fundamentally, is a small-scale democratic community 
in which uh, four-year-olds, as well as older children and adults, have uh, the democratic rights and responsibilities. Yes, absolutely. You know, that's, you know, when you're saying that, I, you, I understand it logically before, but really it comes together in, you know, really thinking about that, how so much it's training our kids, uh, you know, allowing that democratic process is the practice of democracy and practicing that from a young age. But the opposite, the flip side in traditional schooling, yeah, it's really just, it's setting them up to be very accepting of that top-down author of that authoritarian structure, because you've already practiced and lived it for most of your life in school. You're sort of growing up feeling like um, you know there's somebody out there who knows everything, and um, yeah. and and um, and I'm sort of insignificant. <laughs> you know, there's right. some people, many people. It's hard for them to overcome that, even as adults. Like you know, like. Um, We've got to find that great leader who uh, can solve our, all our problems for us instead of recognizing, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is my job <laughs> to solve these problems as much as anybody yeah. else's. And there's nobody really out there who's, uh, who's better at it than I am. We're all, kind of, we're all kind of equal in a certain sense. I mean, we have different abilities and so on. Uh, but there, it, it's not the case that there's some, you know, that there's some adult with quotation marks around it who uh, knows everything and is going to solve our problems for us. And yeah, right. that's we, the kind we of for, attitude that yeah. oftentimes even the best students in school um, acquire from this, um, from going through school. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. It's funny, a little personal anecdote for you just before I uh, came up here to my little kind of office to do this interview because I unschool my kids. So they are at home with me here today. And um, my son, they knew I was interviewing you and they know your book. And so my son had asked me, are you are you ready, mom, for the interview? Or are you how are you feeling? Great. <laughs> I said, well, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm a little bit, but I'm also a little bit nervous. And he said to me, mom, don't forget, He's a regular person, just like all of us. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> that's what, that's a it's going to be okay. <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> so I, you know, I looked at him and gave him a hug and said, thank you. Yes, <laughs> you are right. <laughs> I'm going to have fun and enjoy it. Yes. And not be nervous. Good. So, Yeah. You know, my wise, my wise 12 year old <laughs> teaches me often every single day. He teaches me and teaches me. So. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the questions as well that I had received is, um, and this is going along with, you know, you know, I think what happens many times is there is a false belief and, or misunderstanding, let's say, that unschooling or even democratic schools is a place for kids just to run wild and they do whatever they want and anybody else is basically ne- negligent of their upbringing kind of thing. So, you know, one of the questions I received was, you know, will they ever be able to follow directions from others or persevere through challenges if they grow up doing what they want? Right. You know, that one of the things that people want to do is to uh, persevere. (laughs) You know, you you can't play. I mean, think about what happens in play. Play involves a lot of perseverance. Play involves... Oftentimes, play gets hard, and oftentimes, in preparation for play, is hard. And um, why is that? It's because play, you know, evolutionarily, play didn't come about for recess. Play didn't come about as a break from learning. Play came about evolutionary by natural selection to serve the purpose of learning those basic skills and attitudes that are very important for becoming an adult including the ability to do hard things and to persevere. When children are free to play, they don't play at something that's easy. They play at something that's hard. They play at, you know, they're always at the cutting edge of their of their abilities when they're playing because otherwise it's boring. So, you know, just think, think of a little toddler who's sort of playfully learning to, to walk, and it's always playful. You know, they're little toddlers walking back and forth between two chairs or two pieces of furniture and sometimes falling and getting up and walking and doing that. But once, and the child is doing that on his own steam, nobody's making him do it. 
It's difficult. You fall. You get up. You do it again. You're persevering. But then that becomes easy. At some point, it becomes too easy. And now the child doesn't keep doing that. The child doesn't just stupidly keep going, walking back and forth. Now the child does something more difficult, like running or climbing stairs or something something more difficult. The child is always moving to higher and higher orders of whatever the kind of play it is. Or just to take a very different example, you know, one of the reasons video games are so attractive to kids is because there's no end to how difficult they can be. You don't, you, you know, you're solving problems, you're learning to, you're certain, learning certain techniques, you're learning a variety of skills. And once you've mastered it so that you can, you can do the game at a particular level, now you can go to a higher level, a more difficult level of the game. So children are always challenging themselves in play. They're challenging themselves in play, I would say, much more than they are in their schoolwork. When they're doing their schoolwork, they do it in the most minimal way possible. Even the A student is not challenging herself or himself. She's just doing the, the least I have to do to get the A, you know. And for some yeah. students, that's not challenging at all. It's, a, it's tedious, but it's not really challenging. It's not really difficult to do it. But in play, it's no fun unless it's, in some sense, difficult, unless it's challenging. It's not, it's, not, it's not stressful because you've chosen to do it. At least it's not highly stressful. You've chosen to do it, and you can always quit if you want. Or if it becomes too difficult, you can go on to something else. But you're always doing that. And you are also, the other thing that's happening in play, because most play in the in the natural world where children, in, 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 unfortunately, this is not so true today, but throughout history, most play has been social play, children playing with other children. And when you're playing with other children, you have to abide by the expectations of the other children. You can't just <clears throat> do what you want to do. You have to compromise. You have to work out. You know, so let's say you and I are a couple of kids and we want to play something together. The first thing we have to figure out is what we might both want to play. I want to play this. You want to play that. No, I don't want to play what you want to play. You don't want to play what I want to play. We have a discussion about it. We arrive at some kind of compromise. And then we start playing. And maybe I'm sort of a domineering kind of person and I want to play it in my way, but you, uh, self-respecting other, other child, say, no, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you make all the rules. I, I need to have some say here too. And, and you'll quit if I don't allow you to have that say. And I, after a while, learn that if I want to play with you, which I really want to do, <laughs> I've got to listen to you. So think of all the structure that's being learned in play. Think of all the rule following that's being in play learned in play. And this is the kind of structure and real rule following that applies to all of human life, applies to all relationships, it applies to any job that you have, it applies to, to any interactions that you have, the kinds of things you have to do to make friends. Life is not uh, full of random activity. Life is cannot be lived in a purely selfish way, and play cannot be enjoyed in a purely selfish way. And children learn how to compromise. They learn how to follow rules. They learn how to create rules. They learn the whole understanding of rules in play and in their natural interactions with other children. Yeah, that, you know, it's... It's interesting because I can see as well and from what you were describing why so many people describe our new you know our generations coming up through so much um, organized activity and and uh, traditional schooling that we're raising nations of robots in the way that it's you know that uh, structure of life the, the natural life structure is being removed a lot of times. That's right. We're not. We're not. We're not um, giving people the experience that it takes to create their own rules, to create their right. own compromises, to figure things out for themselves. And so, you know, one of the there one of the sad effects of this, which we're hearing uh, from pe- from university professors, we're hearing them from people who employ young adults is that young adults are entering the world expecting to be told exactly what to do. (laughs) 
as yes, instead of so. yes. th- believing, hey, it's my job to figure out what I have to do. It's my job to figure yeah. out how to write this term paper. It's my job to figure out how to do what my employer wants me to do. Not to have, uh, it's not my employer's job to tell me in every single detail exactly how I'm supposed to do this, right? Yeah. But because we're training children in the school system where they're being told exactly what they have to do, where they're being micromanaged, and where that's even being reinforced at home by parents who sit them down and make sure they do their homework so they don't even have to remember to do it themselves. Um, when that's all being reinforced, um, then they go out into the work world and, and, the, and the professors are not there to micromanage them. <laughs> and the employers are I, hopefully not there to micromanage them. They're, they're there to say, look, this is the job that needs to be done. Figure out how to do it. That's exactly. And that, that's the feedback that I get from many others that I know that have businesses that have been hiring and say, you know, I, especially when you're running a business, you have time for a certain amount of things. You don't have time to give all of your employees every single detailed instruction of what they need to do next. And that's what they're searching for. They said, you know, when they're hiring, they want someone who's self-motivated, someone who can solve their own problems, someone who can create and plan on their own independently. Those are the real skills that that they really require, never mind even what they studied in school, if they're able to do that, then they're able to carry on independently, which is what they need for their business or for workplace. And that ranges from all different, like a dentist office to financial investing or, you know, from, I've heard from all different backgrounds and areas. And, and it's, and it's uh, even more true today than it has been in the past. I mean, in the past, there were certain very routine jobs you'd you know, working on an assembly line, you know, you didn't have to figure out much. You just were told what to do and you did it day after day, year after year. But now we've got robots for that. You know, we've got, yeah. we don't need, we don't need uh, people to do those kinds of things. We need people who are able to think out of the box, who are able to solve problems that um, haven't been solved yet. Um, so that's the, um, so and and so it's no surprise from this perspective that young people who grow up in charge of their own education are doing very well out in the work world they're doing better out in the work world as far as i can tell than uh people who are uh coming up through the typical school system so if you are a parent or even a young person who wants to step out of what is considered the traditional learning and educational world right now, and you're interested in the self-directed learning process, uh, do you have any recommendations or where you would direct them, uh, where they can where they can start this process for themselves? Yes. Well, I, I suppose somewhat selfishly, I would suggest uh, read my book, Free to Learn, as one beginning. Yeah, be selfish. Uh, yes, recommend Go that. to the website of the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. We've got a lot of, we've sort of got, we've got a lot of information there. We've got join the, join the Alliance for Self-Directed Education and Here's a little plug, make a, at least a small donation to the Alliance, right? And um, yep. what the Alliance provides is all kinds of support for people doing this. Uh, we have a forum uh, where you can raise questions and get answers from other people who are involved with self-directed education, as well as from our own, from the team of us who are in, involved with the Alliance. You, we have a Tipping Points magazine uh, that uh, is stories written by people who are doing self-directed education or whose uh, children are. Uh, we have, uh, we have various, uh, we, we also have uh, a way of helping to organize people in local communities. We, help catalyze the formation of local self-directed education groups of families who are uh, living in the same geographic area so that they can get together and support one another. There's lots of resources available through the uh, Alliance for Self-Directed Education. So I would certainly direct people to go there. People who want to do more reading, I I have been for for quite a number of years now. It turns out actually nine years is hard to believe. I've been writing a regular blog for Psychology Today magazine uh, where many of my essays have to do with issues of uh, self-directed education, of parenting, of how to be a trustful parent in this 
world where, uh, by and large, um, most people are not trustful of children. So all of those I will reference in the show notes as well. Your book, uh, the ASDE, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education website, and how you can join and donate, and as well your blog on psychology today. I will add all of those in, as well as a lot of the great references on people as like Daniel Greenberg from Sudbury and Sudbury Valley Schools. And I think Brian Sutton-Smith was one of the other names that you had mentioned. Yes, he's written um, about plays. He's one of the authors of of a lot of work on play, not specifically about self-directed education, but some of what he's written about play is certainly relevant to to self-directed education. Fantastic. I will include all of that. Thank you so much again for taking the time to to speak with me and to share your knowledge on learning and self-directed education and play and the power of it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website, imhomeschooling.com, or email me directly, robin at imhomeschooling.com. This episode was brought to you by Fearless Learners by Success Codes. Book your free clarity coaching call with one of their learning success coaches at www.learningsuccessacademy.com or check out their free weekly show from Fear to Fearless on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Go to learningsuccessacademy.com. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, leave a review or comment. I'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas and reflections on the episode. You can go to the website imhomeschooling.com or email me directly robin at imhomeschooling.com. homeschooling.com.